from Double Door Studios at Manassas National Battlefield Park. I'm Nikki Bland. And I'm Franny Robin. This is A Different Truth. A Different Truth can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please like and follow us on those platforms. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and a review. That helps us get more views and show up in more searches. You can also check us out at our website, adifferenttruthpodcast.com. We will share resources and information on our website and social media platforms, where you can also send questions, comments, and ideas for future podcasts. We really want this to be an interactive engagement with our listeners, so please let us hear from you. Thanks again for listening. In our next three episodes, we speak to Graylin C. Kimbrough, retired law enforcement officer at the local and federal levels, social justice advocate and community activist. Graylin touches on so many topics relevant to our mission here at A Different Truth Podcast during our conversation, and we hash through a lot. Let's just jump right in. All right, we're here, we're back. It's been a little bit, but we are excited to be back in the studio. Welcome to A Different Truth Podcast. And we are here today with Graylin C. Kimbrough. So excited. Um, we already told him, poor guy is like the first person we've talked to in over a month. So <laughs> we're about to explode. This may be two, three, four parter. Yeah. We'll see how long we talk till we run out of gas. So thank you for being here. Thanks Franny, good to see you. Good to be here. I think we're just going to make the we're back part a standard intro, part of our intro. Yeah, <laughs> we're back. Yeah, we're back. But you know what? I just hashtag 2020, man. I mean, every yeah. time we turn yep. around. Yeah. Something yeah. crazy is happening. Yeah. 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 So we could just say 2020 is 2020 mm-hmm. again. The year okay. that never ends. Yeah. Right. It's so good to be here. And in studio, we have um, Grill and C. Kimbrough with us. And I cannot wait to share some of the conversations um, that we're going to deep dive into. Yeah. And he's, I just want to, I'll let him introduce himself, but for for me, I just am very impressed that he's literally like a walking (laughs) history.com. You're putting way too much. Every time we say something like that about someone that really impresses us based on, you know, their expansive knowledge of history and Mm -hmm. um, just a lot of information, they always say, oh, you're putting way, and then they get on the microphone. It's kind of like, see, (laughs) you know, I, I, I think that's because. I think the more you you research and more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't yeah. know. And right. I think a lot of people, uh, y- you see it throughout our society right now. Everybody already thinks they have all the information and all the answers. And it's the people who probably spend a little bit more time studying, a little bit more time learning, mm-hmm. who are l- l- less likely to say that they know everything already. Yeah, yeah. They're actually kind of more passive with a lot of conversations yeah i think too that um i don't know why you would want to be static in your knowledge and say or even present yourself as having arrived like we're there i'm done i have all the things like never never like i want to learn something new every day and so far that's proved to be true yeah 
And that should be our goal. The, you know, there's an ahadith that says, um, uh, the shield of a scholar is I don't know. All right. And the hadith is, uh, is like an Islamic, uh, uh, source of wisdom secondary to the, to the Quran. But the, the shield of a scholar is, I don't know, Hmm. meaning a scholar who's truly understands he has a sense of, uh, safety intellectually and academically because at any time he can say, well, you know, I simply don't know that. But once you've arrived to the point where you think, you know, so much, that you know everything, yeah. you lose that shield to being able to say, hey, I don't know this. I'm going to get back to you on yeah. it. Mm-hmm. That is a that is actually an intellectual sense of cover to be to not have to know everything and to concede. I don't know everything. Yeah. Um, what I always tell people is I look forward to the opportunities to be proven wrong mm-hmm. because it's an opportunity for me to learn at that yeah, point. Right. I always look yeah. forward to it. But people don't think of being like learning as being proven being proven wrong it's in my observation anyways it's a sense of pride and people are like personally wounded mm-hmm. when they're proven wrong and they go into like this defensive position and rather than use the, the opportunity to learn um a wall is built so i i thank you for sharing that and hopefully you know people who are listening could take an opportunity to, to practice a new response well most yeah. definitely yeah it's part of uh, what i've seen in our society is um, we allow everything to define who we are, mm-hmm. every little thing, mm-hmm. um, from clothing to vehicles to a conversation on a specific subject. Yeah. You know, we used to kind of be joking about, like, say, sports teams, using sports teams to identify mm-hmm. ourselves. Your team is going to beat my team. And that used to be like that. That was our rivalry right there. And then it became like this political rivalry yeah. where. Uh, we allow every individual aspect of every individual situation to then define us. Yeah. So then it gets into these subsects of considerations where uh, a specific part of a political consideration then begins to define us. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. And, and other people's opinions of you. Correct. And yeah. whether or not they agree with you. And I think that's what leads to, you know, cancel culture and yes. this you know, these posts of, if you don't agree with my political opinion, go ahead and defriend me. It's like, where's the coming together? Yeah. You know, where's the respectful disagreement? Where's the individualism that we so claim to espouse? But really, if you're too individualistic, if your individualism doesn't look like mine, you're wrong. You're bad. Mm-hmm. You know, that's back to that binary we're always talking mm-hmm. about, you know, where there's no, I mean, life is so gray and, it, you know, social media in particular, we, we try to make it so black and white Definitely. and yeah. I've never seen anybody read a Facebook post and go, hmm, I'm going <laughs> to com- do a complete 180. If you can give them a nugget that they're willing, even willing to yeah. consider thinking about then you've made more progress than most. You yeah, know? I agree, Nikki. And on social media, we try to take on such big issues without any clear solution. And it's all gray. 
But mm-hmm. because like, you know, Graylin was saying earlier, we hold so tightly to our belief systems or identity yeah. mm-hmm. that we're unwilling to venture into like to the middle so that mm-hmm. we can come to some kind of solution. Because a lot of the things that we're trying to solve on social media, some, the courts have to decide on a lot of yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're hammering each other. I believe social media is a great place to start the conversation and then to take it offline. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I wanted to also share, I'm just starting to read Audre Lorde's, uh, I can't remember which one of, I'm reading two of her books. But um, one of the things that she said, and you kind of um, alluded to, Graylin, is that each of us have... Um, or should take on an, um, an attitude to want to learn mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, what's going to really help us heal and drive us to unity is our courage to speak. And we, we develop the courage to speak as we're learning more mm-hmm. and not just speaking for the sake of speaking, but speaking for the sake of healing ourselves and uniting each other. So I kind of take, I'm taking mm-hmm. that and this discussion <laughs> that we're having as part of right. the, the process to heal and to learn from each other. So thank you so much for being here. Okay, so now that we've spoken for eight minutes, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> yes, Why don't you take some time and introduce yourself? And you've got so many, so much to share. You're, you're yeah. Anyway, um, I'll let you do it. <laughs> Graylin C. Kimbrough again. Um, I, my most important uh, description in regards to me is that I'm a father of three beautiful children and the husband of Ola Oda Kimbrough. Um, so I always, I always need to start with that. Uh, secondly, I'm originally from San Diego, California. Um, I went to college in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I'm, I'm a military brat. Okay. I'm a military brat that, that by default ended up being on my own since I was 16. Um, I have a, Bachelor's degree in Africana Studies, uh, Master's in Public Administration. I just concluded 14 years in law enforcement at the local and at federal levels. Um, and now uh, my pursuits are entrepreneurial. Um, in, in, in the wake of kind of our modern society right now and our uh, Black Lives Matter discussions and everything else, uh, uh, there's a lack of emphasis, I believe, on black economics mm-hmm. and that's the sphere that I want to go into specifically with um, uh, entrepreneurial endeavors. And, you know, um, you know, the big thing to me is the company I formed, uh, Del Barro, with a couple of my friends. And Del Barro in Spanish means from the mud or from the clay. Mm. And that is very much uh, kind of who and where I am. You know, growing up in San Diego, San Diego, California is... SoCal is gang heavy. Mm. It's just, it's, it's gang heavy. Mm-hmm. There's just no way around it. Um, most of my family is from New York. Both my parents were born in New York and even going to New York, New York is gang heavy. Mm. So it's just been a part of the culture. New York city, New York city, Okay. New York mm-hmm. city. Um, and then, uh, my dad went to high school in Detroit. So he went from Brooklyn to Detroit. It's not like, yeah. <laughs> you know, my mom went from, Bronx, New York, and then went down south to help with family. And she was raised in Latta, South Carolina for high school before going back and forth. Mm. The country, rural country. My parents came up from the mud. The gang cultures I grew up around came, you know, up from the mud. I went to school 
college in Detroit, you hear a lot of people say, yeah, I'm from Detroit, but they're from the suburbs. Mm. They're from eight, yep. the other side of eight mile. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the culture I come from. Um, you know, uh, my second language is Spanish. You know, I've I've grown up a lot of places where, you know, I was the minority within the minority. Yeah. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just been part of my journey in law enforcement. Um, for one reason or another, I'm always different. You know, I remember being told um, that I'm too black to be blue. So I had too much of an understanding and acknowledgement of uh, black history and the black experience to actually fit in to policing and police culture. But I was an outstanding cop. I was an outstanding supervisor. I mean, I'm great with people, Mm -hmm. Um, even interacting with people that I dislike. You know, Um, I I, I think back on there's there's two things in our society. We're having police discussions now that I really think about um, unusually is I've gotten into fights with people on the street and we fought. And I've had to take people to the hospital based on that fight. And I've had people thank me because they acknowledged that I only did what I had to do in order to resolve the situation. Nobody got any more hits on me or me any more hits on them than was absolutely necessary Mm -hmm. in order to conclude the situation. I mean, Gillen, in light of today's uh, environment, that's a pretty um, life and death situation to put yourself in. Well, I've been in a life and death situation. Um, November 12, 2007, um, a lot of people in police culture talk about taking a life. I've taken a life in the line of duty. I know what that means. I know what that feels like. All right. But. What I tell people is, especially with talking to cops, I don't I don't measure you based on the the singular because it's usually only one time in your career. Yeah. The singular time when you pulled the trigger. How many times were you in a situation where you could have pulled the trigger and you did not? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That means more to me than anything else. Mm. All right. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Mm-hmm. There are a few other situations in my career where I could have justified pulling the trigger and I did not. The one time that I did pull the trigger, it's because I had no other choice but to pull the trigger. There's a difference between being able to legally and or morally justify taking something compared to having zero other alternative but to do something. And it's that conceptualization with use of force. You know, these conversations we're talking about now in our society are not exclusively about um, police killings. They're about police brutality, which takes on multiple forms, including extrajudicial killings. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's about the fights. It's about did you throw one more punch than you needed to throw to arrest that individual? Mm-hmm. Okay. Police brutality is. Did I need to pull that person over? Did I need to extract them from their vehicle? Did I need to use the words that I used? You know what, Grillin? I'm just, I, I, I trailed off somewhere as you were talking. 
um, the self-control that goes into, should I pull that trick? And I, I just felt like you, you touched something in me that I, I don't think I've heard at all throughout the protesting or even um, maybe that doesn't mean it hasn't been said, but what if the conversations around the protest and the justice demands for justice and police reform started from what you just said? What if the conversation started around the times that I could have pulled the trigger Mm -hmm. and I didn't and then get people to understand why these killings are so egregious because it we don't know the history of well we know the history of some of the cops mm-hmm. but when when you talk about did i did i should i have pulled the trigger or is this a time that and we have seen in multiple like even in all the all the situations that we're actually protesting the conversation needs to start from that point because in every instance, there wasn't a need to pull the trigger. Correct. So it's it's very difficult in our modern society right now to have nuanced conversation. Yes. Okay. So in to me, in order to have a conversation which says that I need to pull the trigger, uh, that would mean that one group would have to concede that I may not have needed to pull the trigger. And then the other group would have to say there are times when you have to pull the trigger. And the polarization of our society, we don't want to concede because we're operating based on extremes. Okay, so uh, hitting the nail on the head. How often do you see in the black community, per se, somebody say, yeah, that was a good shooting, period. No caveat, no nothing, just... Uh, I I get it. Yeah, I understand why that cop. You don't you don't see that. Okay. Now the flip side of that in the law enforcement community, in the blue community, there's always a. Well, I mean, it doesn't look like he maybe should have shot him, but we gotta wait for all the facts and details to yeah. come out. And there's then some subjectivity we're not privy to. Yeah, there's that always would justify it. Well, you don't under you're you're Monday morning quarterback in this situation right now. I remember. Um, the Walter Scott shooting. Okay. The Walter Scott shooting was even more egregious to me than the George Floyd shooting. Walter Scott was the gentleman killed in South Carolina. I believe it was 2015 where he was shot through the back. Mm -hmm. Um, The police officer then threw down his taser next to the body to make it seem like he grabbed his taser and that's why he shot him. Okay. So Walter Scott is running away from him. Okay. And he draws his weapon and praise be to God entirely. There was a, somebody hiding behind a tree video recording this. OK, I'm praise be to God. Mm. No sarcasm. I'm thankful somebody was there. And he aims in and he shoots Walter Scott through the back. No weapon, no nothing. Just I'm not chasing you. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I still heard officers. Well, you know, he could have and it might have been and. No, like you're looking at the actual video. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. There's no, there's nothing absent right here. You can see his hands. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's not a fling felon. He's not running into a population of people. It looks like it's the country and there's nobody else around. No, just say 
no, that was a bad shooting. He murdered that man. Yeah. You, you don't need to rationalize it. It's just bad, you know. So yeah. to have that, that, to begin the conversation with the assertion that you're, you're bringing up, which is I don't need to pull the trigger or the situations where I didn't need to pull the trigger would require a, a level of intellectual depth, mm-hmm. uh, a, a lack of humility, a lack of selflessness that we're not really ready for right now. Now, you're sparking, you're creating the seed for it right now, which is equally as important. Yeah, You know, something may not exist yesterday that all of a sudden exists in totality today. It's got to start with that spark. But in general, nobody wants to be able to, it's that tribalism. Yeah, you're right. But when you see the like the extremism, oh man, the you know, for me the processing is that okay they they're in need of an answer. But you're right, no one. The current state of attitudes right now, people really just want to hold on. Correct to the extremism. Correct, and people are not. Well, there's a very strong defensiveness. Yeah, wherever you are, I think by and large most people, um. At least most people who aren't committed to the continual learning, the hearing the other perspectives, you know, and um, understanding that there is a lived experience that may be different from their own, Mm -hmm. which is something else we talk about. It's, It's like we were talking about earlier before we started where... As soon as those core beliefs start getting challenged, even if it's not a core belief that you would be able to write down and articulate as a grammatically correct sentence, but just something in you is like, mm, nope, that's that's just part of yeah. my belief system and my perspective, mm-hmm. that as soon as that starts getting challenged, you you're know, challenging me. Your you're blood, challenging it's my a identity. personal attack attack it's an it's some invalidation of a piece of my identity and if we're not continually changing and growing as human beings till the day we die what are we doing yeah you know it gets back even to the scholarly that shield of i don't know everything forget it being a shield it's just a fact yeah you know so why would you be opposed, even if you're never going to agree? Yeah. Hear me out. Understand that just because you don't get it and you can't relate to it doesn't make it any less real to that person. And I'm not talking about like, hey, your truth is not my truth. I'm, I'm talking about just I cannot know. Everything. And I cannot know what it's like to be anyone else whether you're white or black or any other color, right? So why is it so hard for people to say, I understand you're coming from a different perspective, one that I can try to hear about and learn more about, but I'll never totally get it because it's not me. So I'm in the minority uh, when it comes to uh, assertion you came up with. a lot of people kind of on the liberal end of the spectrum dislike this perspective of me is I don't like the concept of my truth. I hate that statement. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't believe there's a plurality of truths. All right. There is the truth. Mm-hmm. The caveat to that is mm. something is the truth until you provide me information to disprove it. At that point, it is no longer the truth. There's a new. Right. Okay. But what we've done and you, this is the um, uh, left leaning side of the rugged individualism. Okay. Um, the, the right leaning side is uh, uh, my identity is attached to this um, also. So the, the left and the right leaning side. So the left leaning side is this is my truth. You can't tell me anything about my truth. Okay. Right. Truth to me is objective. Okay. Truth can be proven or disproven. Truth is generally speaking scientific. All right. But when we've made truth a subjective standard, we do that in the same breath to ensure that nobody can challenge us. So is another way of saying that, that if something is by definition subjective, Mm -hmm. it doesn't fall into the realm of truth or lie. Mm -hmm. It can. Okay. I would say subjectively, my viewpoint can be skewed. I can concede that my viewpoint, I want to be objective, but I can concede my viewpoint is subjective because I don't have all of the information. Okay. I saw an incident out there, but from where I was at, I can't see all of the facts and details. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So with that paradigm, my viewpoint right here is the truth. It is also my truth. But as I move further out of this corner right here, I'm going to be able to see more information and my subjective truth becomes more objective because I have more information. So let me give you an example. Systemic racism. Right. There are those who don't experience it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is not real. It is not true. Okay. There are many for whom it is quite real Mm -hmm. because of their lived experience. They believe and accept that it is true. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with both. Okay. How would you go ahead? Well, I can add a little something Mm -hmm. Um, before the example. So um, I get extremely frustrated and um, Nikki and I are both like solutions oriented people. And when I hear the extremism, mm-hmm. um, I want to be that person who could stand in the middle and try to get people to come to the middle. And I think on these issues. And so what 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 I I'm going to share is what I've observed in the last few months. Uh, there, there are pockets of people um, who have become way more educated because of the pandemic, the the, the, the published books on systemic racism and, and, you know, the history of slavery and how it has um, carried on and evolved into our culture. And as it's being um, presented 
in a variety of formats. And so what is happening, because there's so, so many learned individuals now, I for some, their worldview, which is one of some of the, I'm going to call our worldview when we are talking about a variety of truths, because each of us are indoctrinated to accept certain facts about our lives and our lives and our existence. And that becomes our worldview. And based on how you're raised, if you're raising in the faith, if you're raising to not have faith, if you're raised, uh, you know, as a black person, whatever, your worldview is developed based on the experiences and the, the teachings that you've you've been trained to have. And so now you have all these pockets of have learned new people who have now learned new truths. And I think one of the things that we kind of talked about or you guys shared is like there are these gaping holes in their worldview and they're now in need of a filler. So then that filler becomes for you or for me or for Nikki, we are now reading all that. We have this massive amount of information that we've now gleaned. And now we, it's poked holes in our worldview and we need to now fill those holes with truth, factual truths. And it's not because we now have to go and experience them for ourselves, but they're proven as factual historical experiences, evidence, systems. And so now I believe there are so many people in our culture, and then please I'll, I'll let you share, who's, who are walking around with big gaping holes in their worldview. How do you um, think or, or what are your thoughts on assisting those people to come to real truth that they don't necessarily need to experience that's factual, that's truth? So... Uh, a few things. Um, one, you look at our society, or the world right now, right? This might be the most informed population that we've ever had, right? Yeah. But we are still absent wisdom, hmm. okay? Simply possessing information doesn't mean that you know how to utilize the information. So right. there's a complete lack of wisdom, by and large, that we have. Trying to get people to accept information is, uh, it's not impossible. It is often unnecessary. All right. I can't convince you to take this pen out of my hand. Okay. Do I need to convince you? Do I want to convince you? And I'm not going to force you to take this pen out of my hand. At some point, there has to be um, some drive in you that has to want to get this information. All right. So you have to make yourself palatable and um, uh, proselytizing. All right. The best form of, of, of trying to convert somebody to your religion your ideology is how you carry yourself. All right. Is this person someone that I want to emulate, that I want to be like? And I think if you presenting yourself in such a way, uh, intellectually, I try and be as non-confrontational as possible. I try. And I, I usually do a pretty good job until you get to a certain point and then, you know, there's a different grade that comes yeah. out. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, my, my fraternity, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a member of the greatest fraternity known to man, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Right? <laughs> um, you know, there's we talk about, you know, the gorilla coming out. Right. right? Mm-hmm. But we're also scholars. We are a fraternity of scholars. All right. I may have grown, but I still have that ability to bring something else out of me. Sometimes that ability allows you to respect the scholarship part of me. Um, okay, I just have a question. So what about uh, you, uh, myself, Nikki, right? We're, we're walking this journey of where we are now impassioned to take the pen. Like we're motivated because you need to have that pen taken out of your hand. It could present a danger. It could become a danger to your existence. Or right? the pen is something... Toxic. We all should, yeah. or, or it's something good. Or it's something good. And, but we have to be willing to take it. Correct. What is the threat? Okay. If, if, if you take this pen, all right, so I had this conversation with my mom, all right? <laughs> this, is, this is, to me, this hits everything, all right? So uh, I became Muslim in 2004, right? And when I became... Um, is it okay if we talk about that a little bit more after you share yeah, this? Yeah, no, okay. no problem, no problem. Uh, I try and be as much of an open book as possible. Yeah. But this to kind of tie the whole point together is I became Muslim in 2004, July 11, 2004. And, you know, my my mom is my best friend. OK, next to my wife, my my mom, <laughs> that that's the queen. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the queen mother. All right. Um, drives me crazy, but I will do anything for her. So. Um, you know, we talked for years. She gets an understanding of what I believe and why I believe it. And we had a discussion one day, this was maybe 10 years ago. And she says, Carl, you know, I, you know, I raised you to be, Carl is my middle name. You know, it's my family name. Uh, you know, I, I raised you to be able to follow that belief system or that path that you believe mm-hmm. is, is uh, acceptable, is good for you. You know, I was raised Southern Baptist. She raised me Southern Baptist. She said, now, I believe everything that you're telling me is the truth. Right. You can prove it to me. You can show it to me. X, Y, and Z. She said, what I have trouble believing is that everything my mother taught me could be wrong. Everything my grandmother taught me could be wrong. Everything that such and such taught me growing up could be wrong. And in that moment, I realized the impact of information, the impact on an individual psyche that taking that pen can can have. Can taking this pen change the foundation of who you are? My mother, at this time, you know, in her late 40s, early 50s, she did 24 years in the Navy. After she got out the Navy, she, well, right before she got out, she got her baccalaureate degree. Uh, last year she got her master's degree. So she, this is somebody who's a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. You know, she's raised two boys. My brother is an officer in the army. And the simple thought of rocking the foundation of the strongest person I know to be walking this earth can be seen in simply questioning her foundation. That's good. Just taking that pen. That's good. And that's scary to know. It is. I believe taking this pen is a value. Mm-hmm. But if I take this pen, 
It forces me to rewrite elements of my foundation. That's why in our society right now, people don't want to take that pen. Uh, Going back to the systemic racism Mm -hmm. consideration that you brought up. And the reason I say both people are wrong (laughs) is because I don't believe in uh, a sociological or larger discussion that's based on anecdotal evidence. So the perspective that you gave me was because I experienced systemic racism, therefore, or because I did not experience it. It does not matter in the wider discussion if I individually experience something to whether or not it is true or not. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. But I I, no, no, those perspectives are definitely. And I think they were the it's ideal for the discussion. But that's why I disagree with both of them, Mm -hmm. because the, the fact that. I individually didn't experience something or I individually did experience something doesn't mean that it is a mass consideration. And when we're talking about something that is systemic or institutional, it is not subject or it's not limited to just anecdotal consideration. One, two or three people. Well, I mean, going back to what you said, though, um, when when we're trying to convince people to take the pen, a lot of times people look at us Mm -hmm. they look at the example that we present and of course it would require us based on what the subject is to share our personal experience but I agree with you um if there's enough evidence to prove the fact that of systemic systemic racism is a thing whether we experience it or not but when we engage in discussions especially when we have someone that says a total denier a lot of times when we want to reach people like, you know, we Correct. Were, we have to default or defer to. You have to humanize it yes. with an anecdotal experience. Yes. And I think that's different. So um, I've had discussions with people about systemic racism. Mm-hmm. OK, I've given them the metrics. OK, I've given them the, the, the understanding and I've given it to officers mm-hmm. and they still say, well, look at you. You. You've done X, you've done Y, you've done Z. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there must not be any systemic racism. Be- right. Yeah. So then that's <laughs> when the anecdotal consideration comes up. Right. And I say, okay, all right. So I have a baccalaureate degree. I have a master's degree. I've done casework in English and Spanish. Okay. I was a street cop before I became federal. Um, I had to be in the agency almost 10 years just to be qualified to be a first line supervisor when people with half my credentials were supervisors in half the time. And I'm, I'm, go ahead. And well, you know, then they start rationalizing it. That doesn't mean that's institutional racism. Yeah. Well, I've been told I was supervising this team of black officers because I am black. Mm-hmm. I'll get back to you on that. Like <laughs> at some point, the, the the anecdotal evidence puts it, it frames it, mm-hmm. but it's important that you have the foundation, which is not built on the anecdotal evidence. Right. The anecdotal, the story allows you to humanize yeah. the statistics. So on a broader level, what what do you suggest? So how do you see 
information being delivered that would facilitate change on, a, on a, just on a larger scale? A macro consideration that is seen through an anecdote. So what I mean by that yeah. is how do I show you a statistic in a human perspective? To me, that is very, very easy when you look at, you know, certain cities, mm -hmm. when you look at certain institutions, at policing, mm -hmm. okay? We'll, we'll take George Floyd, for example, mm -hmm. okay? George Floyd's situation is an anecdote. Can you see a police officer kneeling on the neck of a white man on camera for eight minutes and 46 seconds and then putting his hands in his pocket while he's doing it. I, I just, I just, I just can't see it. I don't, okay? I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it. Um, all right. Can you see four police officers with batons beating a white man on camera for 25 minutes on camera I just I just can't see it well if I were to envision each of those I see interceptors like I see people getting involved to rescue that individual from the police officer's brutality I don't see that I, 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 don't, I don't see people necessarily interceding I, I think uh, there's a deference, there's a deference to police authority that our society has. Even if it's majority culture being yep. Yep. victim? So Now there's socioeconomic considerations there too. Because hmm. there's things that you're going to do and, uh, and there's ways you're going to talk to the police yeah. based on your socioeconomic status that's different. That would trigger a response from the police office, a different Correct. response. Correct. Got it. There's, okay, I see that. There's a difference yeah. in how you're going to act, where you're going to act, not only for the population, but for the Got police it. department also. And we've seen the videos, right, Yeah. of the white guy brandishing mm -hmm. the yeah. samurai sword mm -hmm. and cussing out the police officers and charging him with mm -hmm. a weapon who yeah. ends up not only not shot, but not arrested. The problem I have with those is there's always going to be the, the one in a billion time, right. That somebody can find, you know, the opposite mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, yeah but this yeah. white guy, yeah. you know, he was shot, you know, and then they start bringing up the facts, right. That support their mm -hmm. perspective. Like it's that. like the That's self. Excellent. They're yeah. bringing up facts. If they're bringing up facts, we can have an adult conversation. But the so one, I mean, I think the problem is it's like the one time or even the 10 times compared to the thousand times. And that's why we have the, the discussion that's based on foundation. OK, mm -hmm. is so the reason I brought up those two situations is George Floyd and Rodney King. Mm -hmm. OK, so I'm humanizing statistics that we have. All right. The statistics show we'll, we'll take, for example, drug cases, black folks and white folks use narcotics at roughly the same rates. Statistically yeah. accurate. Yeah. OK. However, black people are arrested for narcotics possession at rates higher than that of white people. Yeah. That's there's no. 
It's a fact. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's yeah. you know, you looked at um, Stop and Frisk in New York, mm-hmm. which was overwhelmingly black and Latino. Mm-hmm. Okay, overwhelmingly. But when you look at the metrics for what was found in possession, you'd be surprised by percentage of mm-hmm. white folks that were stopped and frisked, the types of narcotics and or firearms that was found on them. Yeah. Well, go back and listen to one of our earlier episodes. We did just that. Like all we talked about were it, it was literally not. I can't remember how it was phrased exactly, but it was just data. Mm-hmm that was proving Mm -hmm. the existence of racism, Mm -hmm. systemic racism. And the data came from law enforcement throughout the United States, self-reporting. So if you figure there was enough self-reporting to prove it, imagine if it wasn't reliant on Mm self-reporting. Correct. How how extreme it could potentially be. Right. And and, and now we're starting to get to kind of like those macro considerations, which says when somebody says, well, there is no systemic racism. Well, can you explain these facts and details to me? Mm -hmm. But that's where we run into the, the wall that we can't get past the extremism. Even if it's even if we're operating from, you know, like you said earlier, you said something that I, I really liked. Uh, well, you said a lot of that I like so far. <laughs> but this particular one in, in relation to this conversation, you, you remember we were talking about how you communicate, but it applies to everything else. You say you set a standard. Right. Mm-hmm. And right now the standard is facts mm-hmm. operating from factual information. And we still are not making progress to a solution in with law enforcement. Virginia is a little different because of certain requirements that our law enforcement officers have to meet and have met and have made them set Or at apart. least Prince William County. Uh, well, well, Prince William yeah. County. Thank you. Um, so we, we start from with those facts, but we, we're not getting... Who's driving the conversation, though? Well, that's the other issue, too. Okay, good. We could talk about that. Who's... <laughs> Well, I think any if if you were to pose that question, yeah, I mean, what I've seen, and not like I'm everywhere, and not like I know everything as we've established, <laughs> but just take the Facebook conversations, right. which I will posit do more harm than good. Um, you get to a point, okay, you're saying systemic racism isn't real. How do you explain this data? Yeah. And Operating at some from point a standard, you, yeah. that's just, yeah, yeah this is a standard. But sta- the standard goes out the window when you start pushing on that identity. Mm-hmm. Because then suddenly, I mean, they're not, they don't respond to that. They, they, it instantly gets defensive mm-hmm. and they just start pointing out, you know, your flaws and you know what I mean? Like, so I don't think it becomes I've an ad hominem attack. So, yes. Uh, three or four years ago, my Facebook was, uh, what is the popular term the kids use now? They lit. Uh, Fire. It was lit. Yeah. It was lit. Um, it was lit all the time with the subject matter. And it's because uh, I have a very non-confrontational approach to conversations about emotionally driven or difficult issues. All right. But it's statistics driven. All right. And this comes to how I am now, even. So after a while, I mean, I'd have post after post with mm-hmm. 
50, 80, 100, 200 comments. And it started to go down after a while. I, you know, I used to have all kinds of people on it. And I remember I, I'd posted something one time. And the first comment somebody made was, I'm not going to say anything because you're going to make me seem racist. Okay. We just saw that last night. Yeah, we did. Now, this was absolutely amazing. It was a great case study to me. All right. The reason it was a great case study is this individual had not yet said anything. Okay. But they were under the impression that I would somehow make them seem racist. Okay. So, which means you realize that you would look racist in a situation. Mm-hmm. You're accepting yeah. that you can easily be framed as racist. You have accepted that there is something that is racist about your presentation and that I somehow would bring that out of you. Or you are now responsible for the response is now making you responsible for carrying the burden of that person's truth. Like you're now, they're not projecting the load of the weight back on you and making you responsible. It's your fault. It's in other your words, fault. Yeah. You are responsible for the perception of them as racist. racist. Correct. Not their own words. Right. This is good. We're going to use that. Um, but Graylin, this is what I, this is what, this is what, who let's get back to. Then when you hit that wall, because it's a, it's concluded as a conclusion, like it's a final response from that individual, right? Because what if you respond, you're going to respond to to show that individual maybe um, how they have arrived. Like you're going to so, expose that individual's journey. Uh, I gotta. <laughs> I hate to do this. This is like an inside thing between uh, me and uh, my boys. All right. So who are your boys? Are these your brothers? Your your brothers? Um, or your business partners? Neither. Okay. All right. These are my, just a group of my best friends. Okay. All right. And uh, we get away, go out of town, hang out just to unwind. Uh, all of these brothers happen to be in law enforcement. All of them are black men, married, kids, all that good stuff. So great people, educate, great people to bounce stuff off of. So uh, on our last trip to Richmond. So you see, I have these tattoos on my arms and, and these tattoos and it's, it's going to connect. Um, my tattoos on my arms say um, these clarifying questions lead to chalk outlines. These clarifying questions lead to chalk outlines. All right. And it, it all kinds of tie, ties into this. So. Um, my guy said, gee. Whenever you start asking questions, I just back up. So the comment was, if I say something, they'll be like, gee, no clarifying questions. Don't ask me any clarifying questions. Because nine times out of ten, if I'm asking you a clarifying question, I already know the answer. Oh, well, do you ever follow up to let that person answer the question for themselves? Oh, it, it, it is deliberate. I know what your response is going to be, and I know where we're going to go after that. Then, G, Carl, C, Kimbrough, <laughs> I'm calling you all your names. 
I want to come back to your question. Who's driving the conversation? You know that, right? Yeah, I'm driving the conversation. Right. So how do we get that conversation driven to a larger platform where now we can engage a larger community to have access to to facts that they would want to now apply to their lives? So in general, you have podcasts like this that are doing that, but it's getting the national reach. The problem is the conversations are dictated by larger media platforms and larger media individuals, all right? So the um, we have this fallacy that if there's a left and there's a right, then fact and truth has to be in the middle. That is not accurate. That is not true, all right? On some things, the truth and fact can be more to the left and some mm-hmm. things can be more to the right, all right? But then you have certain situations where it's never You know, you will never convince me that there's quality journalism being done at one American news network. It's just it's just not there. All right. Um, You will never convince me that some of these left wing blogs are calling themselves journalists. You're not. Journalism is supposed to be objective. Okay, so when they dominate these conversations. It's very difficult to objectively have these conversations, but it can be done and it is being done. Yeah. Uh, the Prince William County chatter group and, and, and the discussion we facilitated in there kind of proved that it can happen. But it was one of the most painful things for me to do that's that tough. I've ever done. Yeah, that, that's hard. That but was you, very difficult. Let me just go on record to say I have admired your courage and your what's the word i'm looking for your being your objectivity thank you um and staying steady to continuously deliver facts um even when you get when i see a comment that's just designed to be an uppercut you know okay hang on i want to get back to the tattoo for a minute oh so grillin could you repeat that again once more please uh so the 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 ink that i have on my arms uh, came from couple of my friends or a bunch of my boys and it's these clarifying questions lead to chalk outlines these clarifying questions lead lead to chalk outlines so good and um so that's kind of what i grafted my concept for the podcast i'm developing is based on and it kind of leads into the same thing where um i usually know where the conversation is going to go and so when a conversation starts and if I start asking, clarifying my questions, my guys will stop me immediately. This Gee, is a trap. Don't, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't do that. Don't. Yeah. Right. No clarifying questions. Yes. You know, if we're in a, a chat discussion, not even in person. Yeah. Gee, stop with the clarifying questions. I love it. Because they kind of know where it's going. Yeah, yeah. And um, so who's who are the chalk outlines? So uh, I'll explain Think- I'll explain yeah. the chalk outline. So there's this, um, there's a, a meme, and I love memes. I have a ridiculous, ignorant yeah. sense of humor, okay? <laughs> but I have this meme, and it has a little boy, and he's holding a crayon in his hand like this. And he's got this, like, insidious smile on his face. And the meme says, they laughed at my drawings, I laughed at their chalk outlines. Aww. So it's it's violent, okay? So our consideration is kind of like intellectual violent, passive. If you can be passive and violent at the same time, 
passive intellectual violence. So we're talking about chalk outlines, intellectually chalking somebody out, intellectually killing them. And I do that by asking you questions. It's the Socratic method of not even attacking you overtly. I'm going to show you the fallacy in your logic and thought process by asking you questions that you do not want to answer or that are going to implicate you in a situation. It leads them to really their own their own demise by their own hand or in this case mouth mouth and mind yep (laughs) just i mean and 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 that kind of it highlights that post i was talking about for a few years ago like all i did was put the post up and that person responded they effectively Mm -hmm. put themselves in a chalk outline so i can't stop thinking about this friend of ours who um puts you know he's certainly not provoking you know but he does share yeah um you know his opinion in some cases facts in others um Mm -hmm. but there's a, a a handful of his you know air quote facebook friends who they're they attack with no facts Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's like you're the comment you got. Right. Why? Are you, I'm not going to say anything because then you're going to call me racist. It's like I I, I didn't do anything, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. yet. <laughs> but you know what you're going to do already. Yeah, yeah. But they just they're just relentless. And it is. It's happened to me too. the same people. And it's it's sort of like I I'm not even going to engage with you because this is not. Any sort of informed person well just yeah you're not interested in having an informed conversation where two people can agree to disagree like that where did that go where did the mm-hmm. civil discourse political discourse I, I, go it i don't it didn't go anywhere it never existed i think we really just you avoided issues 100 percent. you know what you know what did, has gone away the right to just vote and not like why is it anybody else's business how you vote and um, it's one thing to go and espouse political, you know, certain um, platforms or policies and advocate for things that you believe are correct or going to make society better, whatever your reason is, right, for voting one way or another. And people can draw whatever conclusions they want from that. But this, I, you have to tell me how you're voting so that I can determine whether or not you can remain my friend. You know, it gets back to the whole, if you're voting this way or that way, go ahead and defriend me now. I'm trying to find um, this quote. um, And I can't find it right now because Mm -hmm. I see what you're talking about. But here's the consideration. Nobody has a right to know. Okay. All right. But let's look at. Let's look at two past presidential elections. For, we'll say 2008. Okay. 2008 was uh, President Barack Obama and Senator John McCain. Okay. And then let's say uh, 
even 2000. 2000 was Al Gore and George Bush, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what were the implications of those presidential elections at that time? Did, do you recall the fate of the country ever really being in question based on either outcome? Do you? The fate of well, the country? The second, the second um, term oh, for President well, Bush. Let, okay, let's just stick with the two that we have. Okay. Like, so 2000 and 2008. 2000 was what oh, again? Uh, was Al, Al Gore. Al Gore. Oh, and so the whole hanging jazz the hanging jazz. This isn't, this is the election when we were looking at the two candidates. Uh, that, well, that's why I'm asking, because the fate of the election, I mean, the the election results, sure. So but, No, but when you went in to vote, mm-hmm. did you say if one person or the other is elected, this country is done? No. 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 So when you looked at the policies of either person, did you feel like their policies would destroy either a whole population in the United States or the country at large? Not with these two dates, no. Not with these two dates. No. Okay. So something else has changed other than simply. Now, <laughs> I would love to say that it's the simple polarization of the country because uh, there's a great Netflix show, if you guys have seen it, The Social Dilemma. I haven't seen it yet. You need to see it. Yeah. So it really discusses the polarization of the country mm-hmm. and, and the drive that um, social media has had on it. However... I don't know that it's just that. That's what I was getting to. That's what I was getting to. I don't think it's just social media. Okay. So I think the policies have gotten more extreme. Yes. So that is kind of what I'm getting to. It's easy to say things aren't really that bad because, you know, it's just that we have extremes in society that are the constituencies are extreme, but that allows us to forego analyzing whether there's any validity to the extremes well i mean the the responses might be extreme that doesn't mean that the problem that they're responding to extremely isn't also extreme yeah i'm thinking so i would agree in that people i have had you know, civil conversation with Mm -hmm. on both sides do feel that liberal has become too progressive. We're flirting with socialism. You know, it's, it's the policies themselves. They believe the policies themselves are leading us to, um, a larger, more heavy bearing federal government and they are states rights advocates. So are they states rights advocates or are they Republicans? Because they can be both, but they also don't have to be the same thing. Depends. Okay. Well, I, but well, and then I was just going to say on the other, on the other end, um, more left leaning folks see, the policies uh-huh. and the practices of the current administration and say we've we've just gone back 150 years 
You know what I mean? Uh, okay. yeah. for, so, the, for the dates that we're looking at, though, I cannot think of a policy that's so different from issues that we're, we're, we're still figuring out right now. And I, I can't think of a policy that's so different from what the requests from previous administrations, like what they were dealing with. I just don't see our the reason for our polarization, even the explanation that we're giving, to be so different from what previous administrations had to deal with, especially during Johnson's... Okay, we're not dealing with any of those other terms, but like I just don't see any policy except for the Affordable Care Act. I was just going to say universal health care. And I would even... I started to say fear of a mandated COVID vaccine, which has been brought up. Correct. But I don't know enough about, like, the vaccination history of this country to know, like, was the polio vaccine, like, a federal mandate? Was, you know, the measles? Like, things we don't even give, unless you're an anti-vaxxer. Ebola. A second thought to getting your kid vaccinated for. Like, is this eventually just going to be one of those things? Like, have you gotten your flu shot? I, I haven't gotten know. a flu shot in like two, three years. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> I'm no. just saying. Like, yeah, 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 that's what you're saying. I'm is tracking. it going to be like at so, that level? Eventually? I haven't seen um, the issue of vaccination be a prevailing issue for who they're voting for. Yeah, because uh, th- they're kind of mixed. It's just up. one example Correct. of like this. The overarching the federal, So I'm going to tell everybody what to do versus well, California does it this way and Florida does rights. it that way. Yeah. So. To me, the consideration is this. Once Barack Obama, and this is my opinion, we've, there's this groundwork that's kind of been laid. It's like the perfect storm that has been created for right now. Social media is part of that perfect storm. The election of Barack Obama is part of that perfect storm. Okay, Uh, Barack Obama was pretty much a moderate. He wasn't that liberal in terms of his policies. He was extremely liberal in terms of his complexion. (laughs) Okay, he had a very liberal complexion. Okay, so it was that liberal capacity which allowed for where we are at right now. That's what I was going to ask. Because to me, President Donald Trump could not have been elected if he was not preceded by President Barack Obama. Okay, And there are not that many policy considerations that needed to be addressed You think about how many of the promises, supposedly, that the current administration made that they were going to change. It's not really that many, okay? But it was the existence of Obama that has allowed for this. Those two polar extremes juxtaposed against the social media explosion is ultimately what's led us to where we're at right now. So an overcorrection to the mistake that was Barack Obama. Correct. (laughs) Okay, so I'm just going to throw this Molotov cocktail out there. 
With that cliffhanger, we'll pick up next time with our discussion of the actions the current administration has taken to benefit African Americans. And of course, so much more. Talk to you soon. This podcast was recorded at Double Door Studios in Gainesville, Virginia, hosted by Franny Robin and Nikki Bland. Produced and engineered by Kenny Bland. Original music by Ryan Robin. Original artwork by Ellie Bland.